0: Tonight, many of us will go home to see a lit Christmas tree with gifts placed neatly underneath. Kids will try to go to sleep; eventually, they will. And when everyone in the house wakes up in the morning and finally gets going, a family will give and receive these gifts. These gifts as expressions of love and joy, even surprise and sacrifice beauty and tradition and of course for many of us here there's a higher plane of meaning in the exchange of gifts at christmas time the gifts are representative of jesus and his birth we christians give gifts as others do throughout the year not just at christmas time we give birthday presents or anniversary presents or just thank yous but with christmas and its gifts something's unusual It's not just horizontal. It's not just an expression of love and gratitude. There's something vertical. Our Christmas gifts are tied to realities which are spiritual and eternal, out of this world and divine. Some say that the first Christmas presents were given to Jesus by the wise men in Matthew 2. And indeed, they gave gifts. It says, they saw the child, they fell down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and they offered him gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, but actually, the first Christmas present, if we can put it that way, had already been given. Not given to Jesus, given in Jesus. Jesus himself was the gift. And he was a gift to the wise men. Whether they recognized it fully right then or not, he was a gift to them. A gift that they couldn't comprehend fully. A gift that they couldn't get on their own. A gift that would give them something that they couldn't earn. This is the gift of Christmas. Christmas is all about what God gave what did he give? Why did he give it? To whom did he give it? How did he give it? Well, these are great questions, and we find answers to those questions in what is probably the most well-known Bible reference in all the world, John 3.16. It's not the most well-known, perhaps. I think probably people know uh, Don't judge, lest you be judged, a little bit more. But but John 3.16 is certainly the most well-known Bible reference. I googled this week, what does John 3.16 say? Apparently I'm not the first person to do that. So some people are curious, they look it up. That's good. But John 3.16 is a bit of a life of its own in pop culture. That's why people go looking, it's curious, they see it all around. Maybe when you hear the phrase, John 3.16, you think jesus nut some guy at a football game with a rainbow afro wig is it one guy with that same wig everywhere or do they pass this wig around is it a john 316 club with rainbow afro wigs i don't know anyway some people snicker at john 316 but there's a reason why it's the most well-known bible reference There's a reason why Christians want you to know about John 3.16. They want you to look it up. The reformer in the 16th century, Martin Luther, he said John 3.16 is the gospel in miniature. It's the whole Bible in miniature. One pastor has put it like this. It's an ocean of thought in just a drop of language. It's actually a wonderful insight into the meaning of Christmas. Because we Christians don't just celebrate that he came. We celebrate why he came and what it means for us. I said yesterday in our Sunday morning services that it often doesn't work to point out some food on the floor to your dog. Your dog will often look at your finger, not the thing at which your finger is pointing And it's possible to celebrate Christmas that way, where we look at the finger and not the food. Maybe we look at all the Christmas stuff around us and miss Jesus. Or maybe we look at the story, and we know the story, we know the facts of the story, but we miss what it's all about, why he came, why it was needed, what he did, why the birth is so, so important. So here's what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's just take that a phrase at a time. Notice it starts with God. The Bible starts with God. In the beginning, God. The story begins and ends with God and hence the hope of the world begins and ends with God. This great Bible verse, this Bible in miniature, begins with God. But not just God. Skip ahead, notice he has an only son, his only son. Now we know already, you've read the verse, you know this verse perhaps, maybe you have it memorized, you know that it says God gave his son. Hold off on gave for just a minute. Just think about this fact God has a son, and yet God, the Son, is God himself. We Christians call it the Trinity. There are three people in the Godhead. There's one God, but there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you're tempted to think that in eternity's past, go way back before any world existed, before there was any people at all. God was just twiddling his thumbs, his spiritual thumbs, I guess. He doesn't really have thumbs. And God was just in heaven, bored, waiting for us to come along. He made us one day because he was just sick of doing nothing. At least there's drama this side of creation, right? Well... You have to understand that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, in eternities past, infinitely in eternities past, have been relating to each other, communicating with each other, enjoying each other, not being lonely or bored, certainly not waiting for us to come along. They've made us and this plan, but it is a plan that has been conceived together. In the three persons of the Trinity, there's something like a covenant behind John 3.16. The Father not just giving the Son, but the Son going. The Son gladly taking on this responsibility, loving as long as, uh, along with the Father. There's God and his only Son. That's where this verse begins and what's behind it. There's a, a, a what behind that. The what of John 3.16 is that God loved. That's the first verb. God loved. The Bible tells us that's who God is. God is love. He's not just love, but boy, he is significantly love. The Bible gives all kinds of attributes about God, what he's like. And it's unique that he is this one. He's not like that or he has this or that. He is love. It's who he is. Which means that his love and his love like a verb, his loving, is rooted in himself. It's for his own glory. It's volitional. It's self-determined. His saving purposes spring from his love. But his love is not like your college romance. It's not like, I can't help it. She's just beautiful. I love her. What do you mean you love her? Tell me. Well, you'd go on. Her hair, her eyes, her laugh, her smile. God's love is not rooted in the other. It's rooted in himself. And you might find that unflattering. You might find that selfish or weird. But that's our only hope. Hope. That his love comes from him. And his love is based on himself, not us. I'm too fickle. I'm not good enough to earn his love. I'm not lovely. I'm part of the world. God loved the world. Now that can mean his love is wide. And that's part of it. John, who writes this, gives us a a picture of Jesus... He's writing to Jews and Gentiles, telling them that Jesus is a world savior. He's a global savior. Jesus will draw all men, all kinds of men and women to himself. So his love is wide. It's for the world, not just for a certain culture or a certain time or a certain place or because he likes this certain geography. No, we love like that. He doesn't. His love also is personal, though. If you thought of God loving the world as God loving the earth, maybe you just pictured a satellite view of earth. God loves the world, and by world you thought earth. Well, sure, he loves his creation, sure, but but that's not what this is saying. And if we're thinking the mass of humanity, a sea of faces, all those that have ever lived in all places of the world, God loves them all, you might think that's pretty impersonal. He loves personally. He loves the world, and yet he loves people in the world, individuals of the world. And he loves deeply. When John says God loved the world, he's not telling us that the world is so big. He's telling us that the world is so bad. It's the world. It's that thing the fallen humanity born in rebellion to God. That's us. If you're part of the world, you're a part of the world here. And that means his love, but also means there's a shocker about his love. He loves sinners. He loves those who aren't just separated from God, but against God, at enmity with God. He set his love on this world. Once again showing us that he loves in a different way than we do. And he loves in a different way than we do because he gave. He gave his only son. He loved so much that he gave. His love isn't just theoretical. Like he looks down, at sentimental. Or he you know, wishes you well. But that's it. He gave. And he gave his only son. Gave his son from heaven to this earth. We call that the incarnation, where God takes on flesh. That's part of what it means here, that God gave his only son. But why did Jesus go to this earth? You see, that word gave pops up a lot in the Bible about Jesus going to the cross. God gave his only son. Not just to this earth, not just as a trick, not just something to impress us with, but he gave his son to the cross unto death for us. And if that sounds like weird cosmic child abuse, remember there's a covenant. Remember they're in this together. So there are so many verses that talk about Jesus going to the cross of his own volition or him giving himself in his life for us. So the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us. He says in Ephesians, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He says in 1 Timothy There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom or a payment for us. Or in Titus, he gave himself to redeem us from all sinful deeds. We could go on and on. God shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans says. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. That's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. The gift is indescribable, unthinkable. I mean, it's an amazing concept to think of someone sacrificing their life for another. But that's what Jesus did. And he sacrificed his life for us, not just when we were good, not just when we meant well. Not after we believed, but before, while we were his enemies, Romans 5 says. Why did he sacrifice his life for us? Why did he come and give his life so that we would not perish? Not perish. This word perish doesn't sound too strong. I mean, fruit perishes. It's perishable. What? What? The saying at the end we're just going to be bruised up and gross? That's true too. <laughs> but when it says perish here, that means die. That means death, and that's like a threefold death. Remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. God told them not to eat of that tree. They ate of it. He told them. He warned them. The day you eat of that tree, you, sure, you will surely die. They began to die physically then. Just like you and I both are. They also died spiritually then. There's now a break in fellowship with God. They're dead to spiritual things, except what they make up on their own. And hence they're dead eternally. If God doesn't intervene, if there isn't redemption, then Adam and Eve and everyone who's ever lived after them will die physically, spiritually, and eternally. So perishing in John 3.16 means ongoing, eternal, conscious death and punishment. It's described in horrific ways in the Bible. Yeah, we're old school here at Desert Springs. We still believe in hell. We believe that Jesus came and that he's coming again. We believe that he saves And we believe that there must be retribution. Now, you might not believe that. You might not believe that there's such a thing as hell, and and maybe there's not such a thing as sin. But what do you think happens after you die? You think you die and then nothingness. But how do you know? You you haven't died yet. You don't know. Right? That's your crapshoot, but... That's what it is. You don't know. No one's come back from the grave and said, Yeah, it's just nothing. There's nothing. It's like a long sleep with no dreams. The Bible says something else. The Bible says that there will be a final reckoning. The tragic events in Sandy Hook remind us that evil is real. And there's no safe haven from it. Evil invades even the safest, most beautiful communities on this earth. and does it without apology. And really it does it without much of a problem. So what hope is there? Well, Christmas is about God reckoning with suffering and sin. He loved and he gave and he will fix it. One way or another, he will fix it. He will make all things right one way or another. That's why he came. That's why he was born. He was born that some would not perish. That's why he died. He died in our place. He died for sinners. That they would not perish, but instead have eternal life. And that just sounds like really long life. It's that, but it's so much more. It's certainly not just the absence of perishing. It's certainly not just the absence of hell and punishment. Eternal life is that, but it's so much more than that. Heaven's chorus will not be eh, boring, but at least it's not hell. You know, at least I, I can deal with this for all eternity if that's what is the alternative. I think some people think that. Hell? Bad. I'll do the other one. What's that one? Uh, I don't know. Chubby babies with harps and things. Angels. A lot of things you can't do. Clouds. But at least it's not hell. That's not what the Bible says. Eternal life is the life. It is life with a capital L. It's life as it should be. Ultimately, that means a new heaven and a new earth, a whole new creation which is described in scripture with just pure symbols because it's so otherworldly. Like gold. What are we going to do with this gold? I don't know. Put it on the streets. What do we do with this enormous pearl? I don't know. Make a gate out of it. You see? It's describing glory in unthinkable ways. And it's not just later, it's not just heaven, but eternal life is. Now when we believe, there's peace and hope and joy in love. It's a new life. And that's why Jesus began this chapter of John 3 by telling a a religious leader, you must be born again. There must be a, a second life, a new life. And in that new life, there's the experience of God's love, not just the gift of his love, and the forgiveness that comes with it, but eternal life and love meeting together for communion with him and relationship with him. That begins immediately once we believe, and it will not change because it doesn't rest on us, the world. It rests on God and his love and the gift of his son. So maybe you ask, okay, how do I get this? Who is this for? Who's in? Who's out? What do I do? Well, it's right there in the middle. We left it out on purpose. Believes. Whoever believes, believes. That's how we receive this. That's how this is ours. God loves and Jesus died so that the believing ones would not perish but have eternal life. So believe. Believe that he is. Believe that he is Who he says he is, not who you think he is or want to think he is. Believe that what he says is true. What he says is true about this world, about himself, and about you. Sometimes that last one's the hardest one. Sometimes easy to believe there's some God out there who's beyond our comprehension. He's like this, he's like that. And then as soon as he points at us and says, and you're like this, we go... What? But he's the Lord. He's right, not us. Believe that he is. Believe that he's true. Believe that this gift can be yours. Believe that it's received by grace according to his work of coming and dying and being raised victoriously. It's not by works of righteousness which we've done. We receive this gift We don't earn it. Where were you when Jesus was born? How much did you play in that role? What role was yours? Oh, You weren't here? Yeah. Yeah, it's his doing. He gave. He gave what we need. He came to do what we can't do. And so we trust and we rest and we give up on on self. And we abandon all forms of self-justification. What a very different economy of gift-giving than Santa Claus. Santa's making a list, and he's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and who's nice. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness' sake. You better watch out. Really? And this guy's gonna take your cookies too. The gifts of God's love. And eternal life through Jesus' coming and dying is ours simply for the asking, simply on the basis of faith, trust, rest, not obedience, not getting to a certain measure, but giving up on all attempts of raising yourself up and improving yourself. Oh, he will improve you. That's our only hope. We've all pouted too much this year. And Jesus knows better than Santa. We've all been naughty this year. Santa keeps a list. Jesus lays his life down. He lays his life down for us. Tim Keller, a pastor in Manhattan, says this, The Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Nothing less. Yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. Amen. Call out to him. Confess that you're of the world, that you're a sinner in need of help. Give up on self and tell him so. Confess that Jesus is Savior and Lord. A prayer like that can just be as short as what one guy said in the Bible. In Luke 18, one guy said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Call out to him and be saved. Because just two verses later in John 3, we hear this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned or perishing but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God Christian he came no condemnation no perishing eternal life it's all around us it's ours more to come not earned simply procured by his covenant love and his faithfulness, his patience. Jesus is coming, Jesus is dying, Jesus is raising. Let all of our giving, tomorrow morning, all through 2013, the rest of our lives, let all of our giving, small and great, whether we're giving or receiving, may it signal what we need the most what we enjoy the most, what we're most thankful for, let it remind us of the greatest gift of all, that indescribable gift of God himself. In the flesh, for our sins, raised and ours, a merciful, welcoming Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to pray that you would work in the hearts and minds of those here who haven't yet come to believe in this only Son, haven't yet come to know your love for them, haven't yet been able to put hope that there could be eternal life. We pray, Lord, you'd give eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. We pray for Christians here, Lord, that you would, as Paul wrote in Romans, that you would fill us with joy and peace in believing so the Holy Spirit and his power may abound in hope in our hearts. Help us as we sing one more time, Lord, to fix our thoughts on the sure, glorious Savior, the clear expression of your love, salvation in the flesh, our victory, our hope, our joy, the very meaning of life, and the one who is life himself. We rejoice in him. We glory in him. Lord, we pray you'd be glorified as we sing and as we celebrate the one who came for us. Amen.